0: Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Apologetics, Part 5, Arguments for God, Part 2. In this lecture, You'll learn four more reasons for God's existence, including the cosmological argument, the moral argument, the miracles argument, and the ontological argument. These are each quite different from each other, which is great because it increases their cumulative effect. Last of all, you'll learn about Pascal's Wager, an interesting strategy that appeals to self-interest. And my hope is that by adding on this second lecture of Arguments for God's Existence, you'll be able to not only build your own faith, but also effectively be able to share your faith with skeptics. If you would like to take this class for credit, please contact the Atlanta Bible College so you can register and do the necessary work for a grade. Here now is Apologetics Part 5, More Arguments for God. We're going to do eight Arguments for God's Existence, all told, today. We have completed four. And again, I'm just sketching these things out. You can always go into more depth. You can research these things online, as well as in the book and in the, uh, any handouts I have. But the first one was the Hummingbird. Basically, with the Hummingbird, we said, this thing is insanely well-designed. Ergo, a designer exists. With the cell, we said, this thing is insanely complicated. There's no such thing as a simple cell. All intelligence comes from cells in the natural world. Therefore, there must be some intelligence that doesn't come from cells. In other words, a god or a supernatural being to generate the first cell, at least. DNA is a language. All language comes from a mind. Therefore, there must be a mind that generated DNA in the first place that is itself not made of DNA. And number four was the fine-tuning argument based on the constants in the physical universe already being fine-tuned for life to exist. It's exceedingly unlikely that these constants would be set as they are unless somebody had monkeyed with the, uh, the controls at the beginning to make it exactly the kind of Goldilocks universe that we inhabit. So that was last time. Now we're gonna look at the domino theory, morality, and miracles before wrapping our heads around the ontological argument which is by far the most difficult to grasp. But it's, it's, it's so fun, I can't not let you know about it. I don't think Meister's up to the ontological argument, but it has a long history and, I don't know, you, you, should, you should know, educated people should know about it, even if you think it's ridiculous. All right, so the domino effect is the Kalam cosmological argument, that's the official name, I just called it domino. It's all about cause and effect. All right, that makes sense. Right? Cause and effect. And so the universe, it goes something like this. Everything that has a beginning has a cause of its beginning. Two, the universe has a beginning. Conclusion the universe has a cause of its beginning. Okay? And so that cause of its beginning must not be itself, right? Because that's, that's contradictory, that's ridiculous. You can't cause yourself to begin to exist, we know that. So the, the, the cause of the universe's beginning must be outside of the universe, or external to the universe, or somehow independent from the universe. God exists. Alright? So this is the Kalam Cosmological Argument. I'm calling it The domino effect just so that you have something a little more concrete in your mind to remember it by and the domino effect is like when you have a bunch of dominoes you know each one lined up you knock over one it knocks over all the other ones so it is with the universe you trace everything back eventually you have to have a beginning and you have to get that first domino tipping before any other events can happen somebody needs to tip the first domino and that somebody or something needs to be external to the universe itself. There are only a few options for the universe. It's an illusion. The universe doesn't really exist. Does anybody want to take that position? It seems to exist, right? As far as we can tell, we're not butterflies dreaming, right? It seems like we're actually here and this is really the universe and we're not just manipulated by an evil genius. It could be that the universe is an illusion. I don't think that's very likely. Moving on to number two, it could be that the universe spontaneously arose from nothing. Or it could be that the universe always existed. Or it could be that the universe was created. In other words, it had a beginning, and someone was involved in it. All right, so those are all the different possibilities, at least that I'm aware of. Go to page 93 now, and let's take a look why we know there is a beginning. Brooke, can you read that? Page 93, Second Law of Thermodynamics.
1: One of the most established laws of science today is the Second Law of Thermodynamics. Fundamental to the Second Law is what is called entropy, which is usually understood to be the measure of unavailable energy or disorder in a closed system. An example of entropy is the decrease of heat energy in a blowing ember. As the ember cools, the available energy in the wood dissipates as the heat disperses into the surrounding environment. According to the second law, the amount of available energy in a closed thermodynamic system, a system within which no new mass or energy is placed, decreases over time. That is, the entropy increases over time. If, as most agree, the universe is all there is in terms of matter and energy, and no new energy is being fed into the system, The universe is such a closed thermodynamic system. So the entropy in the universe is increasing over time. To put it differently, the amount of available energy and order in the universe is decreasing over time. Therefore, the universe will eventually reach a state of thermodynamic equilibrium. In this case, such equilibrium would mean that the temperature would remain constant and change no longer. All of the hot stars, for example, will eventually cool off and remain stable at a constant temperature no longer
0: expending heat energy. All right, so the idea of this principle or this law of thermodynamics is that the amount of usable energy in the universe is decreasing over time. As a result, if the universe were eternal, if it had always been here, everything would already be uh, at what we call heat death, where everything is at the same temperature. But since there are warm and cold things in our universe, we know that the universe is not infinitely old, it is some particular age, whatever that might be, but it's a finite number. So there is, in fact, a beginning to the universe, okay? I think premise number one is totally non-controversial, right, everything that has a beginning has a cause to its beginning. Do you have a beginning, Jacob? Yes. How many years ago was that beginning? Well,
1: uh, 20.
0: 20, okay, so 20 years ago you had a beginning. Yes. We'll give them 21. Right. Oh my Gestation. <laughs> right? And what was the cause of your beginning? It was your parents, right? <laughs> we don't need to draw a diagram. But yes, it was, it, was, it was your parents caused your beginning, and their parents caused their beginning, right? This phone right here has a beginning, right? This phone didn't always exist. At some point in time, I don't know how long ago, a couple years ago, a year ago, I don't know, this phone had a beginning, and then I got it used from someone else, (laughs) and it was wonderful. And, uh, you know, everything around us that has a beginning has a cause of its beginning. Uh, What's something that doesn't have a beginning? I mean, other than God, what's something that doesn't have a beginning that you can think of? You think there's nothing? Because everything
1: was created by something something
0: But not everything has a beginning energy. God. Other than God. What about the number two? Nice abstract
1: thoughts?
0: Yeah, abstract ideas, like the number two. It doesn't have a beginning. Nobody invented the number two. It's just a concept that exists out there. You might call it spy or dose or duh or however the French people say that. Uh, <laughs> you know, whatever you call it, but uh, it's it's, a, it's an abstract concept, right? So People discover the concept of two or the concept of pi, right? 3.14, the concept of pi, you know, the, the ratio of the circumference to the radius in a circle, that's, that's a concept that just exists. Nobody started that, somebody just noticed it one day. But it was always like that, right? And so those sorts of things don't have beginnings. But the universe is not an abstract thing like that, is it? The universe has physical stuff right? It has stuff in it, right? Physical stuff that, you know, we can feel, right? So the universe is more like a thing than an abstract principle. And so I think it's completely reasonable to say the universe has a beginning, especially in light of the fact that the second law of thermodynamics says that the universe would already be at heat death if it had always existed. There's another argument that Meister makes. You can't cross an infinite. It's a philosophical argument. And so if you had an infinite series prior to this moment, you would never get to this moment. And I'll let you read his book if you want to know more about that. <laughs> it, it eventually makes sense. <laughs> you, know, you just wrestle it down, and uh, eventually it will make sense. But uh, you can never get to now if you have to cross infinity to get here. Um, <laughs> that's for sure.
1: Um, really quick to find entropy, because it's, it calls it the measure of unavailable energy in the closed system, which to and is think Hi, uh-huh.
0: So entropy is a word for randomness. Okay. Yeah, chaos. and oh, so disorder is not the measure. So disorder increases. Disorder, okay. Disorder increases. And um, the way heat exchange works is it works from uh, hot to cold, and, it, and it's an ordered system. So as that heat exchanges, it, you have less usable energy because randomness and chaos are always increasing. An analogy I might use is like if you leave your your skateboard outside, it's not going to, you know, after a year be shiny and painted a fresh new color. No, it's going to be broken down and rusted out and probably have like a bird nest on it or something weird because you just left it outside. So, like, things that you just sort of don't do anything with tend to break down. And that happens not just for stuff like that, but the universe itself is always in a constant downward trend. It's kind of depressing, huh? Things are becoming more and more scattered and random and on a universal scale, not in your bedroom. Your bedroom should be nice and clean. We should all look at that chart that Josiah showed us before, page 92, right? The universe either has a beginning or has no beginning. If it has a beginning, it's either caused or not caused. I don't think it's possible to have a beginning without a cause. I'm just gonna go ahead and stick my foot in the ground there, and then say, if it's cause, it's either personal or not personal, right? The problem with impersonal causes is there's no reason why it should suddenly happen, okay? In other words, take this pen and gravity. Gravity is an impersonal process that's always acting on this pen, so long as it's on Earth, right? So. Gravity doesn't just like suddenly start pulling on the pen. It's always pulling on the pin, which is to say, whenever I let it go, it's going to drop, right? Because gravity doesn't just decide to start working. It's an impersonal process. It's always in effect, right? And so if there was an impersonal process that caused the universe, the universe would be infinitely old, because that cause would have always been acting on the, the universe. But we already said the universe isn't infinitely old, so therefore, it must have a cause, and that cause must be personal, because only a person can decide to do something at a point in time, okay? Gravity just always works. It's just always pulling, it's just always pulling. Me, however, I just decided to lift up the pen. So I initiated a new event, I began a new event, and gravity was pulling the whole time. So that's the difference between a personal and an impersonal cause of something happening. There are a couple of drawbacks to the cosmological argument or the domino effect argument. One is that it doesn't rule out multiple gods. Could be that multiple gods caused the universe to exist. The other thing it doesn't rule out is an infinite succession of gods, right? So it could be that one god caused the universe and another god caused that god to come into existence and another god caused that god to come into existence, right? You have an infinite succession of gods, right? How do we answer the question of, well, who made God? Look at premise number one. Once again, only things that have a beginning need a cause. If God doesn't have a beginning, he doesn't need a cause of his beginning. The number two doesn't have a beginning either, so it doesn't need a cause. So if God has a beginning, then he needs a cause of his beginning. But if he always existed, then he doesn't need a cause of his beginning. Okay? It's basically just an error in understanding God's nature. God's nature is eternal. Therefore, he doesn't require a cause. Therefore, the question, who made God, is like asking who made God. The number pi it's like nobody made it it's just it's just there man people use it they discover it they have to memorize it and then they forget it <laughs> but nobody made it and, and then they die there you go in, in the story on the high note there huh. it's great all right so let's, let's look at the argument from morality now number six here argument for morality and we've already touched on this a little bit, so I don't think this is going to be too difficult for you to see. There is such a thing as a moral absolute, Two. There is a standard by which uh, we can determine morals. And three, the the standard for morals must come from somewhere. How about that? So we have two options. We have some sort of higher being. Or we could have a natural explanation. Is there a, yeah. a name for this mycological list set up? Syllogism. That's what it's called. Like premise, premise, however many premises you want, and conclusion. It's called a syllogism. It functions on logic. What's so cool about it, because logic is something that pretty much everyone agrees. Or at least should agree after reading the truth chapter in Meister's book because <laughs> the law of non-contradiction right so the moral argument is that there are moral absolutes the example I always give it's always the same example is it's always wrong no matter who you are it doesn't matter if you're Jesse or if you're Jacob it's wrong for you to torture children for the fun of it yeah. everyone agrees that it's just always wrong to torture children for the fun of it. So that's, that's my example. Because like a lot of times people be like, no, there aren't any moral absolutes. What do you, what's your comeback to that? So you're saying sometimes it's okay to torture children for the fun of it. Is that what you're saying, Mr. Atheist? Yes. And they'll be like, no, no, I think that's wrong. they be like, all right, well, then there's at least one moral absolute. It's wrong to torture children <laughs> for fun. Okay? That's our one moral absolute, right? <laughs> okay, and uh, that's so easy for everyone to agree to. It's not really that... Or how about another one? It's wrong to coerce people to believe like you. Oh People could agree to that, right? I think an atheist... You me, wrong like you. Yeah, right? <laughs> Otherwise, I get to coerce you into believing like me yeah. if you disagree with that statement. <laughs> or h- how about this one? It's wrong for me to steal your money right now. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> Generally, people are going to agree with that, too. Like, it's wrong for me to just take your money, right? Uh, if, you, if you think about things abstractly, they'll be like, oh, well, what if you're really hungry? Or be like, no, I'm talking you, me, right now, where we are. I want your money. If it's not wrong, give it to me. If it is wrong, there's a moral absolute. People are going to respond to that. So that, that's the idea of moral absolutes. There are certain things that are wrong for everyone, right? And then there are other things that are relative. I totally recognize that. Like for me to kiss Ruth Finnegan on the lips, is morally righteous and good. For Dan Wall to do it, he's gonna be in a world of pain. You know what I mean? And so, cause she's my wife and he can't kiss her on the lips, you know? If he wants to kiss her on the cheek and like say hello kind of a thing, that's fine once in a while. But um, if I even see him do that, like every, every five minutes, you know, like we're gonna have a conversation, you know? Because it's, it's, it's different for me and it's different for him. All right, so step one is there are moral absolutes. Step two is there's a standard by which we can determine morals, right? In other words, there's some way we can figure out this is wrong, this is right. Maybe not in every realm of life where there's lots of gray areas and confusion, but at least in some areas, like torture children for the fun of it, we can all say it's definitely wrong, right? And then the atheist is like, no, there's, there's gotta be some scenario in which it's okay to torture children. And they're like, well, what if the child had the passcode to a nuclear bomb that was about to go off. And then you reply, well, we said it was for the fun of it. We didn't say it was in order to save the world from a nuclear bomb. We said it was for the fun of it. Darn, I guess you're right. You shouldn't torture people for the fun of it. It's just wrong. If we admit there is something that is just wrong, then there's some sort of way we're judging that. There's some sort of standard. Where does that standard come from? It could come from two possible places. Some, something within the universe itself or something outside of the universe. This thing outside the universe, I call here a higher, a higher being, right? How about external source, which we call God, or it could be gods. That's possible based on this argument. Or internal source, which would be society or nature, nature or what do we call it, like evolution? Yeah. I don't know evolution, natural, naturalistic evolution. All right, so if, if the source of morals, and I, I've already mentioned this earlier, but if the source of morals comes from society, then they do not have any authority beyond that culture. All right, so if you travel to a different society that has different rules, then you're free to disregard the morals you learned in the, your native society, right? And so it's not absolute anymore if it's just basically a bunch of people that agree to it. A bunch of people agreeing to something doesn't make it absolute. Absolute means it's true for everyone, not just true for some people, right? Yeah, I was gonna say it makes it relative. Makes it relative. So, society does not work. Evolution. If morals come from evolution, the principle of evolution is that might makes right, survival of the fittest, the process of natural selection is that the stronger, the smarter, the people with whatever the advantage is over others should reproduce and reproduce more, and the weaker should die. And it's good that weak, weaker beings die or less advanced beings die, because it pollutes the gene pool. And so on evolution, we justify crazy things like rape, forced sterilization, eugenics. That's another word for that. and Uh, Lots of other naughty behavior. Killing off competitors. You know, like if you see a couple of lions in the fields of Africa and they're both like competing for the same female, right? And one kills the other, you don't think anything about it, right? You're like, wow, I guess this other lion was stronger or smarter or faster or... So he won and then he gets to mate with the female. Transfer that to the human situation and what do we end up with? A bunch of psychos. And what do we do with psychos? We put them in jail, right? I already mentioned this before. So it's completely inadequate to generate your moral standard from society or from evolution. The other option is that it's an external source. In other words, morals come from a moral lawgiver, i.e. God. Any questions on that? Did that kind of make sense? been through it a couple times now, so hopefully it does. All right, number seven here is an argument from miracles. This is so easy, you're going to be like, wow, that's the easiest argument I heard all day, right? Look, if a miracle is something that interrupts the normal laws of nature, then one miracle would be proof that there is some sort of divine realm or divine being. Whether an angel or a spirit or a god or whatever, right? So if we define a miracle as something that cannot happen unless the laws of nature are interrupted, then even just proving one miracle is all it would take. Just one miracle in the history of humankind would be evidence enough to prove that there is some sort of higher power beyond the natural world, right? Now I'm not talking about when when. Uh, Someone gives birth to a baby and everyone's like, oh, it's a miracle. It's not a miracle. It's weird. It's scary, especially for the husband who's sort of like powerlessly standing there while his woman is writhing in agony. But yeah, I guess people think that's beautiful. But it's not a miracle because it happens. There's no interruption of natural processes there, right? Natural processes are taking place. Laws of nature are functioning normally, right? However, if... Somebody walks on water. The density of the human is more than the density of water, therefore, people sink. Right? People sink. We all agree on that, right? Even if you eat like a lot of donuts right before you go to try to stand on the water, you still sink, right? Even if you like suck in a bunch of air and then step out. Onto the water, what happens? You still sink, right? Because you have bones, I'm sorry. But your density is, 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 more, is greater than the water's density, so you sink. So how in the world can you get somebody to, to walk on the water? It has to be a miracle, right? Or a miraculous healing, right? If you have a cold and you just get better, that happens to people all the time. But if you get better the moment somebody prays over you, that would be a little fishy. Like, wait a second, I've had colds before, I know that it takes so many days until it gets better, and you're in the midst of something really nasty and somebody prays for you and suddenly it's gone, that would be a little weird, right? That would be more of a, a miracle. So that's what I'm talking about when, I, when I'm uh, saying miracles. The one miracle I'm going to focus on in this class is the resurrection of Jesus, because we have access to it historically, okay? And so... The miracle that I want to prove, if you will, happened. I mean, I can never prove beyond a shadow of a doubt. There's always going to be some level of taking a step of faith in the situation. But I can at least give you strong historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And we're going to do that in another lecture, okay? But any miracle would, a true miracle, would be evidence of a non closed system if we could put it that way, a divine realm of some sort. Also, under this same category, we could put people's testimony. That's a little harder if you're talking to like a really strong atheist. If you say to them, hey, I was a a loser, no good, people using jerk and I was addicted to drugs or whatever. You know, like whatever kind of juicy story you wanna come up with for somebody and then and say, I prayed this prayer and God came into my heart and he changed my life. Atheist, what could an atheist say in response to that?
1: You, might laugh and
0: say, you mean if they don't believe you? I'm saying if, if, if you're sincere and you're really, this is your experience, you're telling it to them, what would they? Mental. Yeah, they would say it's, your, it's psychology, man. You believe that you had this experience and so you lived it out and so you cha- it was you that changed it all. It wasn't God changing you, it was you, right? So, uh, testimony, depends on what kind of testimony we're talking about. I've heard some crazy testimonies, right? Where it's like, there's no way you could explain that away. But an atheist is going to try to explain that away. And they're also going to try to explain away miracle stories. Like, I'll give you an example. Jay Klein is an elder at our church who had testicular cancer. And it spread to his brain, of all places. And it multiplied in his head until there were all these tumors in his brain and they were giving him radiation and chemo, but you know it was like a lost cause kind of thing. I mean, basically they said it wasn't gonna work. My father prayed for him, some other people prayed for him, he prayed for himself. Basically the doctor said he was gonna die. If he wasn't gonna die, somehow he survived, he would never have children because of all the radiation. It was testicular cancer, you know what I mean? Um, all the radiation and everything else. And, um, and so the next time he went to the doctor's office, he was completely fine. All the tumors were gone. And so the doctors have like the actual documentation of what his brain looked like with all the tumors, and then his scan afterwards, and it was so far beyond anything that they had ever seen before or ever seen since that even his doctor himself calls it a miracle, right? And I know with cancer stories, people will generally say, yeah, you know, it just went into remission, but it'll be back or whatever. That was over 20 years ago. And he had a daughter since then, and she's fully grown and out of the house. It's not just like a, a fluke kind of a thing. It's something that was legit. How old's Ani? She's your age, right? Yeah, yeah, so it was probably 30 years ago that this whole thing went down. He's still here. And you know what he does? He works in hospitals ministering to people that are sick. <laughs> He's a chaplain in a hospital. But, you know, an atheist will be like, oh, well, just because you don't understand it doesn't mean you, you know, and they'll try to find some sort of exception to that. And I'll be like, look, let me just, let me just give you his phone number. You talk to him and you, you, you work, just talk right to the source. You know, I'm secondhand. You know, you probably have stories that you've heard or people that you know, or maybe experiences you've had of miracles as well. But the, the big one I'm gonna focus on is the, the resurrection of Jesus. And I'm gonna get to that later. So I'm gonna hold on this whole business about miracles, okay? Any questions on that or comments? Who's ready for the ontological argument?
1: Isn't that the word used when we're talking about like Jesus and God being of the same substance? Isn't
0: that Mm -hmm. ontological? Yeah. Ontos is a Greek word uh, related to the word to be, uh, which in the first person instance is emi. Uh, But antos is the participle, I believe, of imi. So it's the word for being. Talking about the essence or the being. This is an argument for God's existence based on his existence itself. Did you catch that? It's an argument for his existence based on his existence. It's really trippy. Anyhow, this guy, Anselm of Canterbury, came up with it about a thousand years ago. Maybe less than that. Canterbury. And so Anselm was a monk, and he was just relaxing one day, and he's like, oh, "Huh, there it is. And then he wrote it down in a book called The Monologion. And then he wrote The Proslogion after that. So the cool thing about the ontological argument is it's fascinating. It can be a faith builder. It's another reason to believe in God. It gives monotheists an advantage over polytheists because the argument proves that there is only one God. That's native to the argument itself. You can't have more than one God for an ontological argument. I should read this to you from his Monologion. It would blow your mind how smart this guy was. There's an idea out there, I'll get to this in the anti-science lecture, there's an idea out there, chronological snobbery, where because we are living in the age communications and information and whatever, that we think we're smarter than ancient people. And you just need to read what ancient people wrote. And you'll just be like, I have no idea what you're even saying. It's not because it doesn't make sense. It's just because they thought at a wavelength that is way beyond Twitter. (laughs) And our attention spans and our cognitive capabilities are not well developed, typically, because we don't exercise that brain muscle very much. We're just like kind of, I'm not saying you guys, but like other people, just kind of lazy, you know? So this guy came up with this argument. It's just totally out there. It all is based on this GCB, okay? The GCB is the greatest conceivable being. And the way I write it or summarize it is, by definition, God is the greatest being you can possibly imagine, all right? And so the way Anselm approaches this is, he says, I want you to imagine greatest possible being and just hold that idea in your head. That's step one. Conceive means to imagine, okay? okay. Not like conceive a baby, but conceive a thought. <laughs> All right, there can only be one greatest conceivable being, right? Because we put that EST, the superlative ending on it, right? If one could imagine something greater or equal to the greatest conceivable being, then the greatest conceivable being was not truly the greatest, right? So there can only be, that's why I say it's good for monotheism, because there can only be one greatest conceivable being. All right, so this is his actual argument, and it, it, it might, yeah, I think it, these might even be his actual words here, which is really sweet, because it's always cool to t- tap into the, the sources, you know, the primary sources. Alex, could you read that?
1: It is a conceptual truth, or so to speak, true recognition, that God is a being than which none greater can be imagined. The greatest thought could be imagined. God exists as my
0: human All right. Do we agree with premise one, that God is a being than which none greater can be conceived or imagined? Right? God is the greatest imaginable being. Okay? That's just as a concept. Right? We're not even saying God exists, but if... Just as an idea, God is the greatest conceivable being. All right, number two, God exists as an idea in the mind. Right? We all agree that in your mind, there's an idea about what I'm talking about, right? Alex, what's the next thing here?
1: Um, a being that exists as an idea in the mind, and in reality, is other things
0: be
1: equal. Greater than a being that is as only as a being
0: in the mind. OK. If something exists in your mind, and in reality, is better, than if it just exists in your mind. Are we okay? Can something just exist in reality and not in your mind? Sure, stuff you don't know about. There could be a whole planet somewhere that exists in reality, but not in our mind, because we just haven't discovered it yet. And something can exist in our mind, but not in reality. Like some sort of invention you have concocted in your head, but you don't know how to, like, make it into reality, right? But if it did exist in reality, it would be better than if it just existed in your mind, right? You have a question? Uh, you might have just answered it, but... All right. So, are you saying that, or is he saying that you
1: can't think of something unless it exists?
0: No. He's saying if you think of something and it exists, it's better than if you just think about it is better to exist in your mind and in reality than just in your mind. Okay. That's what he's basically saying.
1: Thus, if God is only as
0: an idea in the mind, then we can imagine something greater. A being that exists is an idea. I, being that exists and is an idea. I think you should emphasize and there. But uh, God exists on, if God is only in your mind, then we can imagine something greater. Alex? But we cannot imagine
1: something that is greater than God. We already define God
0: Clear as day, right? So let's, let's run through it one more time. This is really a good one. It's a brain teaser. So in your mind, I want you to hold the idea of God as the greatest conceivable being. God is an idea in your mind that's greater than any other being that can possibly exist. It's an idea in your mind. Now, if it exists, if God exists and is an idea in your mind, it's better than if it's just in your mind, all right? Now, if God only exists in your mind and not in reality, we can imagine something better than God. Namely, a God who does exist in reality and in your mind. But we can't imagine something greater than God because we define God as the greatest imaginable being. Therefore, God must exist in reality and in your mind. Because if he didn't exist in reality, would, there would be a contradiction. weird. Yeah. It's totally weird. But there it is, and now you know about it. So feel free to memorize that and impress your friends. Yeah.
1: The greatest conceivable being. Yeah. So this is just to prove that a god or.
0: Not just a god, but the greatest possible god. Okay. Okay.
1: The greatest. So.
0: It wouldn't. It wouldn't support a lower god has to be the supreme God. The question
1: is, how can there be a greatest conceivable being in the mind of somebody since we're all different and we all have um, it seems like the greatest conceivable greatest conceivable being is subjective. Because there's like 15 people in this room and we could all have different ideas of what the greatest conceivable being is.
0: I think Anselm would disagree. I think he would say how powerful would the greatest conceivable being be for you? What if I didn't say all powerful? That would be different from everybody else. But yeah, but all-powerful is obviously the greatest possible <laughs> amount of power. But
1: that's not my greatest
0: conceivable being. So you can conceive of a being... Hold on, hold on. You can conceive of a being that is more... That is greater than all-powerful.
1: For the sake of argument, let's say less.
0: How is it greater to have less power?
1: Yeah. See, it's the greatest thing you can... You
0: see how, you see how is, this is really... It defines itself. It
1: may be for you. It may be that's what you would want your greatest conceivable being to have. But for me...
0: Well, would you, how much power would your greatest conceivable being have? 95%. Yeah, but we can conceive of a greater being that's 96%. But
1: that's not my conceivable... That's not... Objectively. No, Objectively. You see what I'm saying?
0: I see what you're saying, but I don't, I don't think it's valid. It's because of the, the word greatest, it's because we're, we're adding a superlative. If we're, if we're just saying your perception of God or your favorite version of God, but we're saying the greatest imaginable version of God. So that would be your maximum. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but if you're going to maximize properties, say power, then you're all powerful. If you're going to maximize an ability such as knowledge, you're omniscient. If you're going to maximize somebody's ability to be in tune with the universe, you're omnipresent, you know what I mean? And so you can see how somebody could fairly easily generate the same list as somebody else if they just basically thought through the same categories. And you can hold a complex idea in your mind without fully grasping all of its details. The concept of infinity, you have it in your head. You might even be picturing a sideways eight in your mind right now, especially since I just said that. But none of us completely, comprehensively, exhaustively understands how infinity works. Right? What's infinity plus one? Infinity. Okay. What's, what happens if you take all the odd numbers out of infinity? You still get infinity. Very good. I'm done with these products. <laughs> so on. All right. Those are eight arguments. I have a ninth argument, and it's very strong, and it's the resurrection of Jesus, and I'm holding that. You've already heard that when you listen to the debate, but I'm going to go through it more in detail. I'm holding that till later okay? But I want to throw at you Pascal's wager, super significant, super useful when talking to people. Let's say up here we have belief God exists, and then here you have belief God doesn't exist, okay? And then over here you have God actually exists, and over here you have God actually doesn't exist. Like I said before, if it doesn't doesn't hurt, you're not learning anything. You're just sort of like remembering things you already knew from somewhere else, right? We want to create wrinkles in your brain tonight. Are you ready? If you believe God exists and God actually does exist, you're happy. Okay? If you believe God exists and you end up dying and there actually isn't a God, You're sleeping, and you don't really care, right? You're out of it. You don't exist anymore. So what? You were wrong. You never really found out because as soon as you died, you didn't exist anymore. Now let's say you believe that God doesn't exist, but God actually exists, Judgment Day, (laughs) right? And let's say you believe that God doesn't exist, and you're right, He doesn't exist. You get what you wanted. You're sleeping and out of it just like the other guy because God doesn't exist, so you died and disappeared anyhow. So which position is better for you out of those two? It's better at just a pure self-interest for you to believe God exists. Because even if you're wrong, it's just the same anyhow. But if you're right, you get to enjoy God forever. That's Pascal's wager. It just makes sense based on self-interest that you would want to believe in God's existence. There's no advantage to not believing in it yeah, yeah. in an ultimate sense. So. Yeah.
1: If you're going with Christianity, that's the wrong motivation to believe in God. Right? talking about Christianity. Though. Yeah, it's just general. in general though.
0: Just just in general. I mean, we can elaborate on it, but I just want you to get the gist of Pascal's wager. Let's take a look at this again. Pascal's wager is an argument for belief in God based not on an appeal to evidence that God exists, but rather based on an appeal to self-interest. It is in our interest to believe in God. The argument suggests that it is therefore rational for us to do so. The claim that it is in our interest to believe in God is supported by a consideration of the possible consequences of belief and unbelief. If we believe in God and He exists, then we will receive the infinite reward of eternal life, while if He does not, we have lost little or nothing. If we do not believe in God and He exists, we will face the wrath of God on Judgment Day and be thrown into the lake of fire, while if He does not, then we will have gained little or nothing. Either receiving eternal life or losing little or nothing is clearly preferable to experiencing God's wrath and destruction in hell or gaining little or nothing. It is therefore in our interest to believe in God. That's Pascal's wager. Probably
1: science and medicine show too that it's in our self-interest to believe in God. While we're alive, too, because
0: people who believe in God are healthier and more happier with us. Mm-hmm. There was a, I think it was a TED Talk, they, they did a study of people that live really long. And faith was a component of all the people that are the oldest people on the planet. Alright, so when we come back, we are going to look at a different subject. We're going to look at the historical Jesus. It's going to be awesome. You're not going to want to miss it. But for right now, we have to take a quiz. If you enjoyed what you heard here, why not give Restitutio a five-star rating in iTunes or Stitcher? Doing so will help others find this podcast and inspire them to love God, follow Christ, and seek truth wherever it leads. Thanks for listening, and check us out online at restitutio.org, where you can find an archive of all the podcasts, as well as a bunch of articles and links to other resources. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.